Welcome to the Health and Wealth Podcast. Here on my screen, we have the scientist, the superstar, Hannah Wendt. She works for True Diagnostics, but started her own epigenetics educational platform called Everything Epigenetics. And we had one of the best discussions I've had about epigenetics, diagnostic testing, and something very interesting Hannah brought up is she was able to slow down her biological aging with a certain test that Dan and do. I can't remember the name of the test, but we talk about it in the podcast. She's a superstar. She's only 25 years old, and she runs this amazing educational platform. This, If you have any interest in epigenetics, biological aging, or ways to slow down your biological aging, this is absolutely the person you need to know. Hannah, if you're listening, thank you again for the podcast. You're a superstar. Guys, you're going to love this podcast. Talk to you soon. What's your origin story? What got you so interested in epigenetics? Yeah, it's pretty linear. I wish I had a more interesting interesting story, but I'll, I'll definitely start with a little bit of background in my history. So I've, I've always loved science as, as far as I can remember looking back across my, my lifetime and in my childhood up until high school and college. So I came to the University of Kentucky to actually study um, animal science at first and wanted to become a vet, you know, get into the, the equine space a little bit to look at becoming a large animal vet. Ended up never thinking I was going to switch career paths. I uh, changed to more of a general biology degree because I didn't want to be so specified in kind of that, that animal field, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. Was actually interested in becoming more of a genetic counselor. So that's when when my interest in in genetics and epigenetics really peaked. Um, always liked genetics though, as as kind of a, a sub field to biology. Um, graduated from UK instead of going directly into genetic counseling, um, which I'm so thankful I did. Looking back, I actually ended up working for um, a, a pharmacy uh, that was in a very unique space. So it was a pharmacy. Um, close to Lexington and Nicholasville, Kentucky, that really paved the way for peptide pharmaceuticals and specialized in very novel uh, peptide unique products. And that was the moment when my entire world was open into this integrative functional medicine kind of space. So a lot of the healthcare providers we served at that pharmacy were only cash pay, um, which was very interesting. I, I never knew that world existed. And what happened um, was we got a lot of backlash, I would say, with these with these peptide products. So we always wanted to prove that they were useful. And we uh, saw the first interventional trial come out in 2019 showing we can reverse these epigenetic methylation markers, which was super exciting. Um, it was a study done by Dr. Greg Fay in 2019, uh, again, looking at growth hormone, metformin, and DHEA. So when we saw that happen, we said, wait a second, this is so clinically applicable. People can quantify their aging process using epigenetic methylation. Not only can they quantify it, they can actually reverse their biological age, which would reverse their risk of almost every single chronic disease and in, in death. So that's really was my, my entryway into epigenetics and will actually be three years old in July, which is also crazy to say. So the exact moment where like a spark your interest was you saw these peptides could reverse biological yeah, some, age. Some, some products, I would say some, yeah, uh, more of that interventional trial. But yeah, that was when more of the, the aha moment, because they were really just more these kind of outcomes 
um, that were created for research. But I think when you bridge the gap between research and clinical use, that's when a lot of, you know, these business ideas kind of start to form. So definitely, I would say it was uh, when that study was published. So I guess some of the listeners might be thinking, the markers for biological age, how highly is that correlated to actual like lifespan and how old you yeah, are? Yeah, it depends what type of biological age clock you're using. So if you train your biological age clock to predict, you know, uh, risk of death and you include that in the predictor, then that one is going to be, you know, better at uh, predicting death, so to speak. But they're really, really good. Um, you know, there's even a death predictor algorithm out there called Grimage, which uh, can even predict really when when you're going to die, um, which, you know, obviously some people don't want to know that. Some people don't even want to know their biological age. But um, the way by which we measure biological age through that through the epigenetic DNA methylation markers um, are going to be, you know, the most accurate, uh, precise, and sensitive way to do so. Do you know, I'm not going to ask you your actual age. Do you know your biological age? I do, age? I do. And fine with giving my, my chronological age if needed. So I'm... Tell, it's yeah. absolutely needed. Tell us both. <laughs> so I'm 25, uh, almost 26, actually, okay. at the end of end of June um, this month. But yes, I've I've tested, and some of my biological ages are are definitely higher. Um, not all of them, um, but I have been able to reverse those as well. Um, even been able to actually slow down my pace of aging. So instead of this overarching biological age, kind of how quickly you're aging at this very moment in time, uh, which is really, really important because it's it's really telling you, you know, is what you're doing working? Is it validated or is it maybe not working? And do you, do you need to adjust your, your regimen? So do you find that the reduction in biological age has a correlation between reduction in certain diseases, like lower chance of getting diabetes or lower chance of getting oh, dementia? Absolutely. Um, I would say that that was proven even back in, in 2011 and 2013 when these clocks were first created. So the reason that they uh, that these were so exciting was because your biological age compared to your chronological age, if, if that's increased, then your you know risk for almost every single chronic disease and death increases as well. So we're talking uh, about you know, diabetes, um, different, even, even different cognitive diseases, like you mentioned, dementia, Alzheimer's, um, we're talking about CVD even, um, and, and, and many more as well, you know, uh, kidney disease, kidney failure, uh, I think I mentioned already chronic inflammatory diseases. So really kind of your, your overarching health really declines as those biological ages become higher and higher. Um, so the associations are extremely strong. You mentioned there's a couple different biological ages. Definitely. Go, go yeah, into those. Yeah, so uh, I think it'd be important to describe the generation of clocks, which this is, uh, this can be a little intense on the scientific side. So just, just cut in if you have any questions. Sure. Treat me like I'm a kindergartner. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so like I mentioned, in 2011 and 2013, these clocks were really first created. Um, those are going to be called first generation clocks. So there, I mean, there are a ton of different algorithms, a lot of different clocks. What these clocks were created to do though, were to predict your chronological age. So they looked at your epigenetic DNA methylation markers and said, by looking at these epigenetic DNA methylation markers, can I predict how old you are chronologically? So how long have you been on this earth? Right. Um, and that's great for a couple 
utilities in a couple applications, things like identifying the age of someone's DNA at a crime scene. They were used to date uh, refugees to see how old they were, if they were old enough to seek asylum. So they have their, their you know, applications, but clinically we could care less about first generation clocks, right? Because we know someone's chronological age, we can just ask them their birth date. Um, but again, this was a really, really big discovery because even your first generation biological age clock had higher outcomes to disease phenotypes and, and relationships than your just typical chronological age. So that, that's, that's generation one, first generation clocks. In about 2018 and 2019, like I mentioned, when that study came out, these second generation clocks are created and they're going to be even better because they're actually measuring some type of underlying biology that's happening in your body. And you're probably thinking, well, tell me, tell me how they create them. Well, they're going to use an underlying, um, yeah, but, uh, kind of metric, uh, that would prove and add to the biological aging. So for example, there's a very famous clock called PhenoAge by Dr. Morgan Levine that uses blood-based values. So think of like a couple markers from a typical CBC panel, um, you know, things like smoking status, uh, BMI even are included in her clock to predict your biological age. The one I mentioned earlier, GrimAge, uh, is also a second generation clock. That one is actually going to use protein values. So it's going to use kind of an array of proteomics to help predict your biological age. Um, and then um, I'm not sure if your listeners would be familiar with this. There's telomere length. So there's even a biological age clock for telomeres where in order to get that biological clock based on DNA methylation, they use telomere length in their calculation as well. So so you had to drink a bunch of red wine. To yeah, yeah, the, the resveratrol, mm-hmm, definitely. So um, there's there's different things you can do to kind of change all of these clocks, but you can now understand why it gets rather maybe a little bit complicated because there's kind of all of these different types of, of, of biological clocks based on generation and then a subset of those clocks underneath the generations as well. Is there like a, in your field, like debates on which clock is the most predictive of age and which clock is load of crap? There definitely is. Um, (laughs) I would say, you know, again, from a clinical utility uh, point of view, you would not want to use a first generation clock. So, you know, anyone who is searching out there, even listening is like, oh, this is cool. I want to measure my biological age. There are a lot of companies out there, but make sure you're just betting them and you can even ask them directly, hey, do you use a second generation clock instead of a first generation clock, right? I think that's very, very important. Um, One clock that I didn't go over yet uh, is actually a third generation clock. Um, There's, you know, this is the last generation, but this is that pace of aging I was talking about. I just mentioned briefly. And instead of an age, it is telling you how quickly you're aging biologically for every one chronological year. So it's a scale. Think of it as like a speedometer, right? Where it's between uh, 0.6 and 1.4. So you want to be below one, right? You want to be aging less than one biological year for every one chronological year. Um, I would say people argue um, that grim age, the death predictor and the Dunedin pace are, are, you know, pretty close in terms of, of being the best. Um, I would argue that the Dunedin pace is still going to be the best. It's the most precise. Um, it's so precise. You can actually retest it every eight to 12 weeks. So every two to three months, if you really wanted to, I think that's really important, um, especially for those who are wanting to test the effectiveness of interventions, right? And, and how their body's responding to it. 
Um, it's going to be the most predictive of mortality and morbidity. So people who have a Dunedin pace above one, their risk for um, overall death and disease diagnosis shoots up by about 50% in the next seven years, um, which is crazy. So we really want to keep that Dunedin pace as low as possible. But the so all all cause mortality is up fifty yeah, percent in seven yeah. years. If this the Nindin pace is at uh, one point four, even just above one, not even at one point four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, and I can send you the links to all of these papers and everything, just so you can. I don't know if you want to link them or you know people are interested. If yeah, mm-hmm. can you spell that Dunedin? Yeah, you're you're saying it correctly. It's D U N as in Nancy E D as in dog, I-N as in Nancy, Dunedin, and then pace, P-A-C-E. And that measures the pace that you're aging, not your biological Correct, another way to, yeah, look at the aging process. What's more important? Um, uh, it's, It's hard because I think when you ask what's more important, it depends on what the person is looking for, right? Um, again, I would argue um, that I would, I, I to me, the Dunedin pace would be the most important. The reason being is I wanna know if what I'm currently doing is slowing down my current kind of pace of aging. Um, but the historical base, the overarching biological ages of those second generation clocks, those are still important as well. Ideally, if you're slowing down your Dunedin pace, your overarching biological ages, you would imagine to decrease too. So they're, they're all kind of, you know, on, on a string working together. Um, something I think that'll shed a little bit more light on the space too, that I'm really excited about is very, very soon. Um, I can't give away too much, but very, very soon, um, we're going to have algorithms that, uh, basically predict the age of different organ systems in your body. So things like your brain age, you know, your heart age, your liver age, the age of your skin. Um, and that is going to be, I think, very, very important to people because maybe they have, uh, you know, genetic risk or history of, you know, hereditary kind of uh, history of cancer in their family in a particular organ system. They'll be able to see if that organ is aging a little bit more quickly and then take preventative personalized approaches to slowing that down. So is the Dunedin, I'm saying it oh, wrong. What's it again? How do you say the so name? So emphasis on the E, Dunedin. Dunedin. Is that the test that Brian Johnson is taking when he says he ages 11 months? He does. He does. I, I, I was going to bring him up as well. So uh, yeah, we work with Brian Johnson um, on the Rejuvenation Olympics, which is basically that epigenetic leaderboard. Um, so, you know, he claims to be the most, I, I truly think he is the most measured man, um, you know, probably to, to ever live at this point because of how much, you know, I would say financial resources he's putting towards, um, you know, tracking everything. Um, but yeah, so, so we use the Dunedin pace as a way to validate is what, is what he is currently doing working. Um, and there does seem to be a, a rhyme and reason to what he's doing as, uh, he, he holds that number one spot in the rejuvenation Olympics. Well, he he's like forty eight, and he looks the same age as his yeah. son, who's eighteen. Yeah. So it's I think working. he looks younger as well. I know um, not everyone agrees, but <laughs> what is your aging? Pace? Yeah, so I just got mine uh, to be a little bit reversed. So it was it was higher the 
previous time I measured it, I think it was about um, 0.89, um, which I like to stay, you know, between probably 0.7 and, and 0.8. Um, and I actually got it to go down 0.85 um, in, in two months, which is, uh, I would say, uh, a pretty quick change. Being able to see any type of reversal is very, very impressive. Um, I really, really think you have to focus on lifestyle factors. Um, so I tried to change, you know, tweak a couple lifestyle factors as well um, by, you know, uh, kind of kind of regulating, shifting my methylation mark was in my favorite favor. A lot of that being uh, stress reduction, I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. So have you read Peter Tia's book, Outlive? I have not yet. No, I have not read that one. Okay. He talks about what you need to do to live long. And actually he talks about mm-hmm. health span, which means like if you're 80, you're healthy. So what are some of these lifestyle factors other than stress that we can do to slow down our biological aging. Yeah, oh, there's so many. Um, we can talk about maybe the the most interesting one to you, or we can talk about all of them, but I'll kind of just name them. Um, there's things, like I mentioned, the stress. There's sleep, not only uh, quantity, but you know, quality sleep as well. There's diet, uh, exercise, so your different fitness levels, um, things like reducing your overall pollution exposure, regulating your insulin uh, sensitivity, uh, you know, not drinking, uh, you know, lower that amount of alcohol consumption as much as possible, uh, not smoking, uh, making sure you're at a healthy weight. So a higher BMI is definitely correlated with faster epigenetic aging. Um, so those are, are just a, a couple, um, you know, kind of lifestyle factors and happy to talk about one or all of them, depending on your focus. Yeah. So, which one seems to get people the most in your research? Like when you go through all these papers, you're like, okay, it's like a large cohort aren't sleeping or they're eating shitty or what is the biggest factor? Oh, I would say, you know, we try to control, we absolutely control for all of them during, you know, interventional trials. Um, I would say we do have a couple, um, uh, you know, very exciting dietary based studies going on right now. Um, so what we know already from a dietary perspective as it relates to biological aging is restrict your calories. Caloric restriction is the number one recommendation for slowing your aging. Uh, the two exceptions I would say are women who are pregnant and breastfeeding and athletes who want to reach, you know, a certain goal, whether it be muscle mass, et cetera. Um, we also know that the Mediterranean diet works very well. So Mediterranean diet is going to be associated with slower biological aging. Um, even things like improving your overall diet quality. So there's the DASH diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. And that's going to be more things um, like whole grains, legumes, less red meat, less sugar sweetened beverages, less sodium. So you're really focusing on the quality of food um, rather than, of course, quantity, because we want to perform a little bit caloric restriction as well. Um, we do see an intake of carotenoids, so any of your orange veggies actually being associated with slower epigenetic aging too. Well, let's stick on diet for a second, because a lot of my guests actually talk about diet. So the only study, and correct me if I'm wrong, that showed caloric restriction increased longevity was in rats. Am I right? There's or a mice? new one uh, that was just published in Nature, okay. actually, um, about three or four months ago now. But it's actually going to be called uh, the Calorie Randomized Control Trial. Um, and in that study, I mean, I mean, this this study is going to make waves for for years and years and years to come. But basically, in this study, it's just a ten percent 
overall caloric restriction in healthy non-obese adults. So they actually tried 25% caloric restriction, which is pretty crazy if you think, oh, I'm cutting, you know, a fourth of my calories out every day. Um, so they just stuck around 10. You know, some people did a little bit more, some people did a little bit less, but that was about average. Um, and what they did in the study is they said, wait a second, we know caloric restriction works to extend lifespan in animal models, like you just mentioned. Uh, there's been several in C. elegans, Drosophila, um, mice, rat models, but it's never been proven in humans. So they kind of, I, I mean, we can think that we would benefit from caloric restriction, but we really don't know because it's never been done. So that's why this uh, trial was actually set up. These um, biological age outcomes that I've been talking about and um, the Dunedin pace are being validated by this calorie randomized control trial, basically saying, okay, which clocks can measure this correctly? And uh, the only one that could really measure it correctly, if you want to guess, um, would be the Dunedin pace. So the Dunedin pace was the only epigenetic age algorithm to um, accurately track a decrease in the pace with the people who performed caloric restriction, and they saw an increase in the control group. Um, the other first generation and second generation clocks that they tested did not show that same result, which is one of the other reasons I would favor the Dunedin pace. Now, are the biomarkers getting better? Like, is overall inflammation going down? Mm -hmm. Is insulin going down? Blood sugar going down with the caloric I restriction? I don't think they measured all of those biomarkers. Um, they may have measured a couple. I'll have to go back and look at the paper. Um, but I don't believe, you know, it's kind of just a purely DNA methylation epigenetic before and after interventional trial with caloric restriction. Okay. With epigenetic aging in general, are the studies that correlated to other biomarkers like triglycerides or cholesterol or blood pressure? Yeah, I would say um, we're looking at it. We're currently investigating them right now, um, but very little is known. Um, obviously, the worse a lot of those biomarkers get, we should expect to see biological ages increase or get worse as well and vice versa. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of that data isn't available in, in the studies that have been done to date just because this is so new. So one of the things we really like to do um, at my company, True Diagnostic, we like to uh, work with healthcare providers. So we've tested about 25,000 people to date, um, most of those being patients of healthcare providers in this integrative functional medicine space. And there's nothing more exciting than the data when you know there's a patient who's taking epigenetic testing, genetic, metabolomics, their CBC panel and their blood-based values, um, along with, you know, any other omic, their phenomic, right? What they look like, uh, and, and then even tracking them longitudinally as well. So as we're able to get more of that data, we'll be able to unleash some, some really, I think, helpful insights. Because, you know, one thing to keep in mind, keep in mind, Vincent, as well, is epigenetic testing is way more than just biological aging. That's how people, you know, first hear about it, but it is predicted to overtake conventional blood testing, hormone panel testing in like the next decade or so, even probably 60 to 70% of all of the diagnostics that uh, healthcare providers are doing in their office today. Do you think there's a big need for that? Because I'll get like a cholesterol panel and then bring it to a functional doctor and they'll say, this is garbage none of these numbers are going to predict health outcomes. What about the epigenetics testing is predicting health outcomes at the 
traditional yeah, test or not. Yeah, I think it looks really good. Um, again, I think still too early to tell. Uh, we're, we're doing a fairly large study, I would say, with Harvard right now, um, looking at a lot of those different omics that I just mentioned previously. But um, some things are going to be highly, highly correlated. For example, we're able to predict your immune cell subset types by looking at your DNA methylation. So all of your lymphocyte levels, you know, CD4, CD8, T cell ratio, your natural killer cells, your neutrophils, your eosinophils, um, and that our correlation value is like 0.9 seven. It's super, super high. So why would you go and do flow cytometry when it's a logistical nightmare? It costs thousands of dollars when you could just get it by doing this finger prick test <laughs> along with all of the other age-related values, right? So that's one example on how this can be super helpful. Um, something we found uh, in the Harvard study that I know to date, again, a lot of the data is being analyzed. Um, the DNA epigenetic methylation is not very good at pre predicting any of your thyroid hormones. Do we know why? Nope. We have no idea. Just a very, very low correlation. So it's not going to be able to do everything. I think we understand that. Um, but I think it's only going to get cheaper over time as demand continues to increase and it's going to increase in value as well. Okay. So let's go back to the diet part real quick. Do you practice caloric restriction? Knowing I this do. Now? I, I think I've, I always kind of have, um, First off, I love to eat. <laughs> I don't think caloric restriction is easy. Um, I think it can be triggering for people who have had an eating disorder in the past, and it's very hard um, to do it properly, right? Um, some people do it for weight loss. I'll tell you right now, not everyone's going to lose weight with caloric restriction. It's not calories in versus calories out. It's how you're actually metabolizing those calories. Um, you may, many people may find they'll lose a little bit of weight at first, but then they're going to come at a homeostatic level. Um, and maybe continue to restrict their calories because they saw that weight change, but you know, that, that would stop. Um, but what I practice is I, I love a big breakfast. I usually work out in the morning, come home, eat, you know, a pretty high protein breakfast. Um, I'll usually skip lunch. I don't eat much for lunch. Um, just never really have after, after college, maybe I'll have, um, you know, a little bit of protein here and there, or, you know, some nuts, berries, fruits, cheese, something a little bit small as a snack. Um, and then eat, I would, what I would call a pretty, balanced uh, dinner, I hope, where, you know, protein, veggie, maybe a little bit of fat and a little bit of carb. Um, but I do have a very large sweet tooth as well. <laughs> um, so sometimes that can get the best of me. But I would say overall, I definitely uh, practice caloric restriction compared to maybe your, your, you know, general kind of consumer. So your method is just try to reduce the calories throughout the day. Because I practice caloric restriction, but because I have such low willpower, <laughs> I, I have to do intermittent fasting because yeah. once the once the food yep. goes in, it's over. So if, if I don't have that timed window, I'm not going yeah, to stick to it. Yeah, and um, that, that's fine. So you're doing, you know, the time-restricted feeding or the intermittent fasting kind of version. And those are great tools to get you to restrict your calories, right? But here's the caveat. You have to make sure you're restricting your calories within that window, right? Because someone can say, hey, I'm going to perform intermittent fasting. I'm only eating from, you know, 8 to 5 p.m. And then they go and they eat, you know, 3,000 calories, right? Um, so you still have to make sure you're eating less calories within that window. That's so true. I could have a 23-hour fast, one-hour feast, and still overeat if I'm not Exactly, careful. and me as well. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel like I, um, you know, uh, 
could could eat a lot and then um, yeah not feel full um, from it for a while. So um, yeah, you you just have to be careful about that. You know, some other things people can do are like the twenty four to. I mean, I've seen people go seventy two hours. I've seen people go longer than that with doing water fast. Um, even things like the Prolon diet, the five day fasting mimicking diet. Um, mm-hmm. eh, you know, um, I have some healthcare providers who love it. I have some who don't like it because it's using you know artificial foods and flavorings, but my two cents on it is I do think it's a very good plan for people who need a plan. Um, right. You can think you're practicing caloric restriction, but you know, I've done prolon once, um, don't like the taste of the soups. I, some days I didn't even eat the soups. I'd rather not eat than eat them. Um, but it is good for people who need a plan, I think in, in, in place and, and need something to follow. Um, one thing I used to do as well is I used to do a 24 hour fast, um, Thursday night, like 7 p.m. to Friday night, 7 p.m. Um, I would do that every week, um, but I, I haven't done it for a while. So maybe this this conversation will make me kick it back in gear. <laughs> Sometimes I'll fast Sunday at like mm-hmm. 6 p.m. Monday to Monday is like the worst day to fast. Yeah. It's like the busiest day at work. So like I'm stupid for doing yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's hard. Like you know, life gets in the way, and you know, I think it all comes back to. When you think of your health, that's super, super important. But, you know, what are you willing to give up, right? Maybe if you're, you have all of these other buckets full, but you enjoy, you know, overeating a couple of days out of the week, you know, that's something you have to be okay with. So I, I really encourage people when I'm coaching them or walking them through protocols and procedures and interventional plans, you know, make it your lifestyle. Don't, don't be so hard on yourself, you know, setting these, these rules and getting upset when you break these rules, but just make it your general lifestyle and, and, you know, be kind to yourself about it. So when you coach people, where do you start? Oh, depends on what their results say, I should say. Um, but I, I definitely, again, come back to the lifestyle factors. I, I think, if you're not doing, and this is a pretty strong statement, but if you're not doing the lifestyle factors right, um, or you're not know, or you don't know what you're willing to give up and, and what you're willing to, you know, do correctly, then you're wasting your time, right? You're if, if you're just hopping to supplements and medications, you're ever, you're taking every pill and you know off Amazon or wherever, you're paying thousands of dollars to do you know procedural based therapies like the plasma exchange or hyperbaric oxygen chamber, and you're still not doing those baseline lifestyle things right. I I think you're, you know, fighting with yourself, essentially. It, it becomes really, really hard. I totally agree. So I think the biggest one for young achievers like yourself is managing mm-hmm. stress. Yeah. How how do you manage? Because acute stress is good. Chronic stress is bad. How are you managing chronic stress? It's, it's hard. Um, I can't remember a time when I was like never not stress to some degree, which is really sad to say. I feel like I'm always, you know, on on high alert. Um, things that have helped me personally, um, hot yoga, definitively. Um, I have a, a hot yoga teacher I love. I'll only go to her classes, but she is great. Um, so hot yoga is great. Uh, any type of breath work. So I use an app called Othership. Um, it's great. I've never done like the true breath work. Usually I would just hop on YouTube, find a 10 minute meditation video, but kind of the, the guided breath work I think is really great. Um, on top of that, things like walking, things like setting time aside, you know, putting the laptop away um, for 15 minutes, you know, every so often throughout your day, kind of clearing your mind, um, doing some type of mind stilling where you're doing meditation at your desk. Um, 
I, I'll journal sometimes every now and then. Um, and honestly, you know, prioritizing what you love, hanging out with friends, family. It's it's summer now. We're, we're having beautiful days in, you know, Lexington, Kentucky. So love getting outside, playing with my dog. Those are just, um, you know, a couple tips. I I probably have a, a little bit of a, a workaholic uh, lifestyle, I would say, to a T. Um, so it's, I think it's really important to kind of separate, um, you know, your, your life and, and your work and really focus on on what you want. Do you have trouble balancing work and life because you're a workaholic personality? Yeah, I would say um, not necessarily. Like I, I love my Saturday mornings. So I have, you know, my podcast, Everything Epigenetics as well, which I do totally on my own time outside of work hours. So I'll go, you know, Saturday morning, um, get up early. I'm, I'm definitely a morning person. Um, do some podcast editing and, and, you know, reach out in different things until – early, late afternoon. And, and I genuinely enjoy doing that. And I enjoy that time. You know, if I didn't, it'd be super hard. I am sure you can resonate. You know, I do all the podcast editing, the the scripts, you know, the tra- all, all of the things, which um, was a learning curve. But I think I liked it so much because it was a learning curve and I'm, you know, learning new skills. I really think I have an older patient based mm-hmm. in my practice. And when some of these patients retire, their health declines rapidly. And I think you're right. I think you need some work that you would work for free if you had to. Like, I don't know if you make money off your podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't make money off mine, but I love it so much. You do it for free. You need that kind of purpose in your life. And that purpose probably reduces biological age and epigenetic markers as it well. It does. It absolutely does. And, you know, there's there's a couple papers as well that say, hey, even if you have, uh, you know, yeah, purpose, quality relationships. Um, you kind of have this internal, you know, warmth or feeling because uh, your your emotions, your thoughts, those trigger downstream effects in your body that can even have a positive or a negative influence on your epigenetics, which is crazy to think. But even just, you know, a little tiny stress, again, whether it's acute or chronic, um, can trigger this entire cascade of events. And you know what's really the, the messed up thing about stress is your body doesn't know if your friend's not texting you back or if your house is on fire, right? You're getting, you're going through the same exact response. So, um, being able to control those triggers and kind of identify the emotions and the feelings. Um, and again, having that sense of, of purpose or this is who I am, right. Uh, can do more for your health than I, I'm sure a lot of people think. Do you have any like mental techniques to control triggers or when a negative thought comes in, how you handle that to get less stressed? Oh, I've, you know, I've been listening to some podcasts and, and things to, to try and actually answer that question. The one thing that I've found so far is just when, you know, you're thinking something negative, um, you know, just saying no, right? No, I'm not, I'm not thinking about this. Like, not worth my time. Like I'm not even letting it into, into my, my kind of body. So it, that's hard, right? you you get your thought, you instantly start feeling some way about it. So just saying no. Um, I think another way to look at it is, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I would say a warrior as well. Um, I'm worrying about everything, you know, what people think, did I do this right? Did I do this wrong? And that's where probably a lot of the anxiety and the stress comes from. Um, if you kind of take a step back, you know, no one's thinking those same things about you, right? They're actually thinking those same things about themselves. So a kind of, you know, going through that thought process, I think is pretty interesting too. Oh yeah. Um, maybe you've done this too. I've said things during the day 
then I go home and I'm like, oh, you're so stupid. Why did you say that? Like you worry about the conversation you had with someone two hours ago. And like you said, they're not thinking about you. They're worried about the booger they had in their nose and you didn't even notice exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's crazy. We, we beat ourselves up over, over you know, the, the smallest things when kind of everyone has that own, you know, self-perception. And then going home and saying, oh, why'd you say that? Like we don't realize it, but that's that's like that's negative emotion. That's negative thought, right? So then again, you go through those triggers and kind of that stress response. So um, I think, yeah, being able to manifest your your thoughts and your feelings, um, probably one of the best things you can you can do for yourself. Controlling your emotions, um, which, you know, can you truly control your emotions? I think is, it makes for another topic uh, as, as well. I mean, I think if you get sleep, diet, all that right, but you can't control your stress levels, it's all for mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. Have you read Feeling Good by David Burns? No, but I need your I need your book recommendations because I haven't read yeah. any of these books. I'm familiar with so yeah, it's, what they are. It's all about cognitive behavioral therapy oh, okay. and reframing thoughts. Um, game changer for me because I'm like you. I worry. I overthink. I have like a million thoughts a day and none of them are yeah. useful. But Check that book out, Feeling Good by David Burns. Feeling Good about David Burns. Okay, I'm going to write it down. (laughs) I think you'll love that. So as we're moving through this, I know that you work for True Diagnostics, but you have your own company, Everything Epigenetics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I created Everything Epigenetics as a way to educate people about epigenetics. It's really that simple. Um, We kind of stemmed from true diagnostic wanting to educate people about epigenetics but you know like with all things no one had enough time so i i made an executive decision uh last year around i think it was october or something just to to start it and you know created it my business and llc from it everything epigenetics um and right now it's really uh, a podcast. So it's a podcast platform. I'm usually interviewing researchers, um, postdocs who are heavily involved in the science behind epigenetics and what it can mean about our health. I have a couple epigenetic coach, um, some psychiatrists, some MDs on there as well, but I really want to open the door up, um, and, and make it more of a community. I definitely have some, some ideas down the road on what I want it to be, you know, creating a really nice everything epigenetics newsletter, um, to include all the, all of the findings, um, even maybe create some epigenetic, uh, diagnostic tools in the future as well. Um, super passionate about, um, even being, being able to predict things like, um, you know, postpartum depression in, in women, um, you know, a lot of, uh, biomarkers surrounding preconception and postconception as well by looking at methylation. So give me some of the insights you've gleaned from these practitioners, the psychiatrists, psychologists. What are they telling you and how are they using epigenetics in their practice? Oh yeah. So, so those, those ones are going to be more, more research-based, I would say like the, the psychiatry. Okay. I actually just interviewed Dr. Anthony Zanis today. Um, he really understands how to, you know, how stress affects the epigenome. So a lot of the questions I would say are, you know, still unknown answers, but, um, and specifically with, uh, Dr. Zanis, he is interested more in behind the mechanism as to why stress can affect aging. So there's a gene called the FKBP5 gene, say that, you know, five times fast, um, that is more of a stress response gene. And he believes that's why, what may cause accelerated aging um, through different stressors. So that's, you know, would will be interesting to follow up on his work and see what he comes up with. But uh, he does a lot of, you know, work in people with anxiety, PTSD, um, you know, people with actual 
accelerated biological aging, they are more likely to uh, develop PTSD down the road. So we can use these things as different predictors and take more of a preventative approach is, is really the overarching kind of theme when I'm talking to everyone. Epigenetics is on the forefront from a diagnostic tool just because it's it's the earliest biomarker. You can really almost, you know, kind of kind of see any type of pattern with epigenetics first and then use uh, more of that preventative care to, to fix the issue. So what comes first? Is it this accelerated aging that makes you more prone to have PTSD or are you like getting stressed first, getting PTSD, then that causes accelerated aging? Yeah, in this particular study, um, I still have the agenda right in, in front. We, we know uh, PTSD is actually associated with advanced epigenetic age. So we, we, we knew that definitively, that you know stress causes epigenetic age acceleration. But he said, okay, wait, can we do the opposite? If you have accelerated age markers from DNA methylation, could that be indicative of PTSD or, you know, high stress as an outcome? Um, and basically he was able to answer yes. So really, you know, you, it could go both ways. So it seems like something else is causing the higher accelerated aging, which lowers your, I don't want to say mental resilience, like they're not weak, but lowers your ability to tolerate stressful events. Yeah, he basically defines it as um, the neural substrates underlying post-traumatic outcomes. Um, so so yeah, some, some really interesting work there. But again, why I love his work so much is he goes into more of the mechanism of action, where a lot of the research you'll find is just going to be more epidemiological based or just truly interventional, you know, before and after testing and seeing the outcome. So this acceleration of biological aging, would you say that stress is the biggest factor driving that or the other ones also are huge factors that you like diet yeah sleep. I think they're all huge I think they're all huge I like to talk about stress again just because you know it's it's closer to my heart um but I'll, I'll yeah. tell you right now I know I mentioned I was you know I'm from north of Dayton Ohio super small town um I've done more report reviews in terms of you know our commercially available epigenetic age outcomes and probably anyone in the world and the people who have the best biological aging, I'm not kidding you, are the people who live on like a farm in Midwest, in the Midwest, like Ohio, Indiana. Um, and they're, you know, moving their body, they're growing their own food, they're at very low stress levels, um, they're getting enough sleep, and they're not overdoing it. They're not doing too much. They're living that quote unquote simple life, which, you know, I, I, I would like to believe that I, you know, am living a simple life as well, but it's, you know, very much delegated by a lot of working, which I also love, right? Where you have the kind of stressors coming in from, you know, the hard nine to five or, you know, more than 40 hours a week as well. So it, it, when, you know, you look at it that way, it becomes more of a balancing act like we previously chatted about. Are these people in good relationships? Are they married? Oh, I don't, I don't have, I'd have to go back and look, but that's something I can definitely look at because it's a question that we asked during our survey. You know, what, yeah, what kind of relationship are you in? Because how much does loneliness contribute to biological aging? Yeah, I, I would say a lot. Um, again, it goes back to relationships, like quality of those relationships. Um, you know, there's, you, you even see, uh, which is oh, so sad, but, you know, an older couple, for example, um, it's called something, but, you know, say for example, the, the woman passes away and her partner, her husband is still around. Um, 
they can die, you know, within a couple months. I think it's like heartbreak syndrome or something. Like, it, that's what, it, that's it? what okay, it's called. Okay. Heartbreak yeah, syndrome. Like yeah, like that's a real thing. Um, I would love to get the epigenetic methylation markers there to understand if there's some type of, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there is some type of signature there. So my grandparents they actually came in the office safe uh, with their cleanings. My grand, my grandma's 94. My grandpa's 92. Um, my grandpa actually smoked for like 60 years of his life, had cancer, survived it. But I, I think they're healthy. They take no medications because they're so in love with each uh, other. So there's got to be a connection between who you love, your relationship, and your epigenetic oh, markers. That is so cute. <laughs> no, there, there definitely has to be. Um, again, I think very introductory information where we like definitively know the association. Like, yes, that has to have a beneficial effect. But to what extent? I don't think we have the outcome data yet, right? Like, like okay. these people, you know, again, methylation has, has only been around for even you know, 10 years, basically these clocks, right? They first came out in, in 2011 and 2013. Um, but we would need that outcome data. So, oh, this couple was together for, you know, 20 years, then broke up or 50 years, then passed away and broke up, like, you know, to, to be able to relate it to that outcome. But I mean, definitively, you know, I, I say that with, you know, basically hundred percent confidence, there has to be a relationship. Yeah, I agree. So how's your sleep? How much are you getting good. at night? My sleep is good. Good. Yes, I, I actually have a whoop, so um, I'm not a big. You like you like lit yeah. up, you like jump up. My sleep was <laughs> That's great. the one good thing I have going for me. Um, yeah, so not a big wearable person, but uh, was was kind of gifted the whoop through this community and, and group I'm in, um, and it's great. I, I you know really do get high sleep numbers, enough sleep. Um, you know. I can get consecutive hundred percent, which I'm, yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, wow. so how many hours, like eight yeah, hours a night, yeah. eight hours. The, the issue with me is if anything, I'd be getting too much or, uh, again, another sign of increased stress is if you fall asleep, when your head hits the pillow, you're not supposed to fall asleep right away. I don't, I don't, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Like if you fall asleep too soon, that's bad. Like a I find myself sometimes falling asleep on the couch, right. Or getting super tired. And that's, you know, a sign of increased stress. So um, if anything, it would be kind of, that's the only issue, but sleep is good. So dive into that. Cause I'm just getting into treating sleep apnea in my patient through orthodontics. Oh. And in one of the courses I went to, they said that they said, if you fall asleep and your head hits the pillow, you're actually highly stressed and you're not getting quality sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to go back and dig into my app. I'm at, we're actually having a sleep challenge right now with my whoop group. Um, but unfortunately I haven't been very active in it. So the, when you go into the whoop, I don't know if you have a whoop or aura ring, you can kind of see I the not. stages of your sleep as well. So, um, I, I don't know off the top of my head how, how much you want, but you want a certain amount of, you know, REM sleep and, and deep sleep is really important. And not only is it important, but you want to have different, um, like sections of deep sleep throughout the night. Like you don't want it to be in consecutive deep sleep. So, um, not, you know, not much. I, I know there, um, I will point you in the direction though of, of someone, if you want to learn a little bit more about sleep. Um, yeah, I'd love yeah, to hear her that. name is, uh, Molly McLaughlin, um, was her maiden name. It's now Molly Eastman. Um, but she okay. has her business called sleep as a skill. Um, and she's just a rock star, honestly. Um, basically believe sleep is a skill, right? You, you can't be a bad sleeper. That's just not possible. Um, there are things you can do to 
be good at sleep. Um, so things like, you know, not eating two hours before you go to bed, right? Again, not drinking alcohol. Um, I find when I have bad sleep, it's because I've even, you know, had a glass of wine or, you know, I drink a little bit too close to bed. Um, things like, uh, exercise are going to obviously benefit your, your sleep. Um, you know, waking up right in the morning, uh, and, and going outside and getting some of that natural light things like, uh, I would say her number one tip, what I've learned from her is having a consistent wake up time, set your alarm, get up when you mean to get up. If you actually, you know, um, snooze the alarm that can cause, uh, you know, harmful sleep patterns, so to speak. What time do you wake up? 625. <laughs> Six, so you're in bed at 1025 and wake up at 625. Or, or I'm in bed at like, you know, 930 if, if at all possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a sleep test done okay. and I have really good deep sleep because I wake up at 4.45, 5 every morning. I get a little less REM because REM happens earlier in the morning. So it's actually healthier to sleep to what you're saying, like 6 a.m. to get that like one hour extra REM. Got it. Got it. I did not know that. No, I'll have to look back and look at my data and my trends because yes, I know I'm getting enough sleep, right? Like I'm getting a hundred percent score, but if I can be a little bit more picky about, you know, which, which kind of zones I'm in and, um, being able to optimize that a little bit more by trying some things too. Um, so, so that would be interesting. Yeah. If I can help it, I'll go to bed as early as possible. And, uh, you know, again, usually wake up around six twenty-five. um, try to get a workout in or try to work on my podcast, you know, for an hour or so before heading into work. You're a go-getter. I try Good to for be. You. I try to be. Yeah. <laughs> I like to be regimented. I like to have a schedule, um, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, a, a busy time in, in my life, I feel like, but just, you know, trying to enjoy every every bit of it. I actually, um, today, I'm in a, every Wednesday, actually, I'm in a, you know, sand volleyball league too. So look forward to that on Wednesdays. That actually um, really increases my, my strain metrics on my whoop too. So um, yeah, you know, it's it's all in good fun. That's good. So other than stress, what else do you struggle with in terms of epigenetics? What other markers Ooh. or lifestyle? I could definitely be good on diet. I, I feel like everyone can be better on diet, right? Diet's just, it's so hard. Um, do you follow the Mediterranean diet? No, I don't, I don't follow any no. type of diet really just besides caloric okay. restriction. Um, definitely. I just need to get more veggies, right? Like, you know, prep more veggies, bring them in for a snack. I feel like I always never end up eating them. So just, just getting some, some more veggies and, and, and protein intake, of course. Um, more recently, I've actually, I love coffee. So I've actually been mixing um, the Equip peanut butter protein um, in my coffees. I had kind of like an afternoon coffee today to try and get some more protein in. Um, it's really yummy. But I, I think the other, uh, only other one I would struggle with as well is, um, you know, I don't consume alcohol very much, but I feel like when I do, um, it's way too much probably because it's always like when I'm with friends or, you know, the people I haven't seen in a while, um, people with AUD alcohol use disorder, which is, you know, just seven drinks a week for women, double that for men, um, actually have a 2.22 year epigenetic age acceleration. So it, it, you know, those drinks can add up over the week, especially if people are even having, you know, a glass of red wine every night. If you're having, if you're a female and you're having that every night a week, you're technically classified as having alcohol use disorder, um, which, you know, can, can seem pretty crazy. So I think, you know, kind of focusing on, yeah, diet, you know, drinking less, um, 
And again, it's not like I, I drink a crazy amount by any means, but I think everything in moderation, right? Um, just trying to do everything together and trying to do everything in the right way, but not giving up too much of, you know, your life and your fun and what you find joy in. There seems to be a big push against alcohol mm-hmm. online lately. I know I heard David Sinclair say that the amount of red wine you have to drink to actually increase your telomeres is you die from alcohol poisoning. <laughs> and like Andrew Huberman's against it. Peter Atia is against all this drinking. So I, I think in like 10 years, people are going to think of drinking like doing drugs. I think so too. Um, I, I truly, truly do. And again, I don't drink nearly as much as I did, you know, even two years ago, right? Like it's just, I just, I, I might be only on weekends, like with friends every now and then. So um, it, it is interesting. I, I think we'll see it go away because you start to see a lot of people who are, you know, just sober to be sober. They're sober curious, right? You hear these kind of words being thrown around. Um, and then you also hear uh, and, and see, I don't, you know, it's not much in Lexington, Kentucky, but like if I'm traveling to like Florida or New York or LA, like all of these alcoholic um, substitutions, right? Where it's like the 0% alcoholic beer, um, I don't know, all of these like 0% seltzers that may taste like alcohol, which, you know, I don't know if, you know, people like the taste of alcohol and they still want it, but not to have <laughs> alcohol in it. I don't know. Um, so I think it'll be like diminished or at least, uh, you know, a lot of it's going to be replaced, um, which I think is, you know, a, a good movement. I, I, I completely agree with that. I think from an epigenetic perspective, especially aging, uh, we can't recommend any type of alcohol consumption, not even red wine. And I agree with you too. When I drink alcohol, I get anxiety the next My day. For like HRV j- plummets. Yeah, so you do too. I don't know what it is, but like I'm like anxious all day for no yeah, reason. Yeah, you kind of get that increased heart rate too. Like it's it's yeah, I don't know. It's it just it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make me feel good about myself. I'm like, oh, that was stupid. Like why did I why did I have that drink? Like you know, I could hydrate with water or something. I don't know. Um, but but yeah, I, I think we'll we'll definitely start to see kind of that entire transition. Honestly. And I'm 36 and I have four mm-hmm. kids, so it's very uncool to be hungover dad. In the oh morning yeah, when they're they say take care of your yeah, kids. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I I couldn't imagine. Um, but yeah, then so so here's the thing. You know, you're hungover. You're like, oh, you know, some greasy food like McDonald's or something sounds really good. Okay, let's go get McDonald's. Oh, now I feel sick from the McDonald's. I'm not working out today, right? Like when, once you start, it's really hard to like, you know, switch over to those better habits, right? Nobody hungover is like, I need some iceberg yeah. lettuce and an elliptical to get <laughs> yeah, back Yeah, right? Track. I, I know some people who will like, when they're hungover, they like force themselves to go to the gym just because they're like, I'm going to sweat it out or I'm going to get it out of my system. And I'm just like, now you're punishing yourself, right? Like that's just not fun. Yeah. No, I wouldn't do that. So we're coming up on the hour mark. This flew by. You're such a good podcast guest. Oh my gosh. This is like so oh, easy. Thank you. Um, I always ask a couple of questions at the end. Number one, what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this interview? Oh, I think everything, I have a couple ones, everything in moderation, right? Um, You know, another thing is you can't manage what you're not measuring. That's a quote by Peter Drucker. That's pretty famous. Um, I don't think you have to measure everything like Brian Johnson, um, but I think you you need to start, right? If you want to make better changes and you want to, you know, keep yourself accountable and see outcomes, use, I even use an app called Way of Life, which basically you check 
yes, I did drink that day or no, I didn't drink. Right. And you can see your habits over time. So just start tracking little by little. Um, and, uh, really, yeah, make it, make it your lifestyle. What are you tracking? I'm tracking, uh, drinking and meditation. So those two. So how much water you drink? Uh, just if I'm drinking alcohol, right? So I'm trying to like quantify. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's, it's a really cool app, just way of life. You can track three things for free <laughs> or it's like six bucks a year. Um, so yeah, it's, it's crazy because you, you think you're not doing or you're doing a certain thing to your liking. But then when you go back, when you're tracking it, I'm like, oh, I only, you know, meditated two days this week. And I thought it was like five, right? So I think that it's just an easy yes, no every day that you plug in there and then you can actually see your habit over, you know, I, I know someone who's been using that app for like eight years, actually. I've only just started for wow. like six months. Um, but I, it already influences like what I'm doing. Like in, if I'm like, oh, I'm too tired or I don't want to meditate tonight. I'll turn on a five minute meditation, right? Right before I go to bed and just like relax myself. Um, so that's really good. That's, that's, yeah. I want people to take away, um, kind of just, just tracking just start for sure everything you track will mm -hmm. get better because you ever go through a month where you're like i think i've only spent this much money and then you like look at your credit card you're like was it stolen, <laughs> was it stolen? Who, who ordered this pizza and jimmy john's or whatever yeah yeah so even <laughs> tracking finances we spend less at home because we see the money going yeah, out just did that with my fiance like i've i've always been cognizant of what I've spent, but then l l putting everything on paper, I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this is crazy. So yeah, just start tracking. <laughs> yeah. Everything. I totally agree. The next one, my second goal is always to put you in the best light possible. So how do people find you? How can people reach out to you? Tell us more about everything epigenetics just so we can get more exposure to yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. So I have my website, everythingepigenetics.com. Uh, you can look at all my podcast episodes there. Um, you can find me on Instagram at everythingepigenetics. If you want to measure your aging, please, please reach out to me. Um, we can get you set up and get you a true diagnostic epigenetic age test if you're you know, wanting to start quantifying the aging process and implement changes and see the, the reversal of that aging process as well. So you can even reach out to me email address, Hannah at truediagnostic.com, Hannah, everything epigenetics.com. Um, our support team as well. We'll, we'll answer any questions you have and take good care of you. That's amazing. And what's your Instagram handle? Is this Hannah Went? Oh, right? it's everything epigenetics. Oh, epigenetics. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. If I was half as smart or as ambitious as you <laughs> at 25, I'd already be like super successful. You're such a superstar. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate those kind words. Yeah. All, all the work will, you know, be worth it. It, it always works out. So Absolutely. Well, good. Well, thanks for coming on and I'll talk to yeah, you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Anna.